gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the Stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldron. Hey everybody, welcome in once again. It's David Summers hosting another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. And again, we're sending, as always, our best wishes to Jeff Baldron, who we hope is back hosting this stud cast very soon. You have found the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Get ready for 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller. Now please welcome the originator of the Studcast, the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Studcast. We step back into the ring and back into time with the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller. Ron is on board with us today. Ron, where are we headed today? Well, man, we're going to ride everywhere today, Dave. We're going a little bit of every place. Uh, in fact, I want to start the show with something uh, totally different for us. And uh, like I said, we're going to go in a lot of different directions. And we're going to talk about a thought I had this past week. Uh, and it kind of occurred to me that I might be one of the only people, maybe the only person in the sport that ever did all of it in uh, in his career. And that means, you know, I started out, I learned to shoot wrestle as a kid and uh, growing up with my dad and my family and a lot of shooters in there. And I learned to work as a professional wrestler. I learned to book. I learned to promote. I was an owner. And uh, I was one of the few wrestlers uh, and one of the few owners that ever built more than one territory. Hmm. So, you know, and uh, some of these I learned, obviously, uh, from people that had trained me somewhat. And others I learned just by myself and and from necessity. So uh, I, I, my goal is kind of to make uh, my listeners uh, the most knowledgeable wrestling fans in the world. So and I thought about in trying to do that. I would uh, do something every week that I can draw from my wrestling experiences and my trainings and uh, offer something unique to the fans out there that they can't get anywhere else. And I think I'm going to call this little segment we'll do every week uh, today's training. And in the first one, we're all going to be an owner here, and we're going to learn how TV shows were recorded, and we're going to learn how these tapes that they're recorded on or move from station to station within a territory. So each week we'll have a little, we're going to be a wrestler next week as an example. Uh, we're going to do three wrestling shows. We're going to wrestle three times in a studio in St. Louis in preparation for a week uh, later to wrestle in Keel Auditorium against Terry Funk. So, you know, I mean, we're just going to go from one aspect of uh, wrestling to another. 
And uh, I think fans will kind of enjoy this. And at the same time, I believe those who listen every week, they're going to get a tremendous education about uh, how how it was not just to be a wrestler, not just to be a promoter, uh, not just to be a booker, to be everything. So, uh, you know, that's what we're going to do. And, uh, and then uh, we're also going to focus on, obviously, the Knoxville card of, of late June uh, 1976. And the highlights of the TV that promotes that card, obviously, and it's a really good television program. We're going to look at uh, one spot show during that course of that week and use that as an example of the type of cards that these smaller cities were getting in 1976 in Southeastern Wrestling. And then we're going to close, obviously, with the learning tree for today. It's not going to be one of the usual questions that we do. This one is going to be my tribute to one of the greats that passed this past week, uh, Mr. Russing number two. So we're going to end the show today with uh, the sad thing in a way, but uh, I really want to talk a little bit about him because uh, I knew him very, very well and he was a personal friend. Well, it sounds like a heck of a ride, Stud. We are saddled up, we are cinched in, and we are ready to go. So where are we headed first today? Well, I think we're going to open up with this new segment that I want to do, and uh, that's today's training. That's what I'm going to call it. And in today's training, uh, you aren't going to hear anything like this anyplace else in wrestling podcast. Uh, I don't believe anybody will be able to do these type of things because most guys don't have any concept about what you do with uh, in producing programs and how you jockey them around from city to city and market to market. So today... We're going to be a young owner of a wrestling company. I'm going to kind of step into my own shoes in 1974 when I started Southeastern Wrestling. Uh, and uh, we're going to put us all in, uh, in my shoes. And, uh, and we're going to be desperately trying to discover what is necessary to produce a TV wrestling show that isn't done live. Um, and then the, back in those days, they weren't on tape. There was very few places that had tape in the early 70s. So uh, first, we need to be aware of uh, some history. Let's talk about the history of studio wrestling before we can take the next step. Okay, so prior to the early 70s, most stations could only do live TV shows. And as a new territory owner in 1974, uh, there were a lot of huge perils in doing a live wrestling show. I mean, you never knew what was going to happen. Bad language. Some guy says something horrible and explodes out of his mouth doing an interview in the heat of passion and, uh, you know, and he just says something crazy and a, and a bad word and, and, uh, or, you know, sometimes a guy's tights could get accidentally pulled down. Uh-oh. Couldn't happen, you know, and you're doing it live, you know, right. so you can't go back and you can't change it. It's there and people have seen it. Right. So, uh, these incidents obviously are live and, and you, uh, you can be thrown off your television station for something like this. Right. And uh, and this suddenly as an owner, uh, you, you get thrown off your TV station uh, and you're a new owner like I was and you're out of business. <laughs> you don't have a whole lot of TV stations back in those days that you could go to. That might be the end of your promotion. It might be the end of your uh, owning any type of territory. So, you know, another thing that could happen is lightning could strike the station's tower <laughs> or the studio itself. And, uh, you know, the rest of the show is lost. You know, bam. Show yeah. goes off, boom, people don't know. you got no TV show. You don't know how long you're going to be off the air. I mean, there's all kinds of things can happen when you're live. So, you know, 
hundreds of other things could go wrong for that matter. So it was a time in the in the early 70s of dramatic changes in the television industry, and especially for wrestlers around the country and around the world, for that matter. And I, as an owner, you know, we desperately, we know, we needed another way. There had to be a better way than live, you know, in 1974. That's what struck me. I got into it. I was at a station that didn't have the equipment, and everything changed. So videotape at this point is in its infancy, and it's not ready for prime time. That's for damn sure. So <laughs> they simply didn't have the technology. They didn't have the equipment in these stations to run videotapes, much less record them. So, you know, that was an even another more difficult step. So my first TV station, like I said, in Knoxville, 1974, was up on top of a mountain, didn't have a very good signal, had no videotape machines at all in the control rooms. Uh, you know, and they had to do every show they did on that station, the local programming, every bit of it was live. So the only program that wasn't live was the programs that were sent down from the National Broadcasting Affiliated Network. And I think this was an ABC affiliation, this first channel I was on in Knoxville. And, uh, you know, that those shows were piped into the channel and they went ahead and showed up. They were going to do the news programs, every the morning programs, the the everything else that anything was done locally, it had to be done live. So there was another reason, other than my commentator, which I really didn't care for in 1974 on my first station, for wanting to change stations uh, after the first six months, and uh, that was because just a few miles down the road from where the station was or where I began was a much stronger station. And they had the technology and the capability of taping shows. And that was going to avoid any possibility of a drastic mistake with a live show and uh, that could possibly end my ownership. So in May of 1975, I made the move from uh, the television station up on top of the mountain uh, in Knoxville down to WBIR-TV, which was a CBS affiliate. So as an owner... I had a lot to learn about taping a TV show. I had never seen one taped at this point. I had been in Florida, and they were taping shows in early 70s. And they were taping them from their own building. And I don't honestly know that they didn't have a truck parked outside that was doing the taping. But I do know that there were no tape machines inside of the building. So that's how they had to be doing it. But I never had the opportunity other than just being a wrestler, to go out and see what this was all about. So I was automatically uh, stuck. Once I got on this station, I wanted to expand my my, uh, my markets. I wanted to grow Southeastern, and I needed to find stations then that had the ability to run tapes. And that knocked out a lot of stations' potential because they, they were still didn't have the tape equipment. They couldn't even air a tape, much less record one. So there wasn't a lot of places that I could go. And, uh, you know, without this, I think uh, these TV stations that had the tapes and they had the ability to tape programs, they were destined for greatness. And by getting involved with one like this that had all this equipment and could tape, I think I made my company destined for greatness as well because we were ahead of the curve, so to speak. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the videotape itself that you used to record on back in those days. And I don't know if you've ever seen one of these, Dave, the old two-inch television tapes. 
Yeah, you didn't have much room to mess around with that that tape because it was pretty expensive back in the day. Oh, yeah, it certainly was, man. And it came in a big old blue container that weighed about 60 pounds. If you ever pick one of those up, you're like, uh, you better watch your back, man. I mean, it was was not a light little container that you, you were in. The tape itself, like I said, was about two inches wide. And it cost back in those days about $200. Do you know what the price of that is in today's money? Oh, no. What? $960 a tape. Wow. Oh, wow. So, yeah. you know, the, but, so think about it. When you're buying it back in those days, you're spending like $1,000 yeah. you know, to buy a tape. So yeah. once the show was aired on the flagship station, and my flagship station was WBIR, that's where it was recorded, and that's why you called it the flagship station. Then the tape was shipped to the next Southeastern TV station for airing. That process was called bicycling. That's, uh, you know, and that term started, I learned that term early in Florida uh, with Eddie Graham and his company. And they bicycled their show from one market to the next uh, around the state of Florida. And in my case, I'm going to bicycle it from state to state. So, uh, Let's use the TV show we talked about today as an example, the one we're going to talk about in today's show. Each show was numbered on the format. There was a format that was standard for every show. Each show had a number on that format, and that format was shipped inside the tape so that when it got to another station, they knew where the commercial breaks were, and they knew how to fill them. So let's call this tape, let's call it the Battle Royal tape, because this tape that we're going to be talking about today showed the results of a Battle Royal. So after this Battle Royal shows tape, then it's aired two hours later in Knoxville. So it's pre-taped in Knoxville. You don't shoot live either there. So you pre-tape the show. Two hours later, you show the show. It was going to be bicycled into the next market. So it's shipped on a Monday morning, two days after it airs to Johnson City, Tennessee, to WJHL Television in Johnson City. They obviously had tape machines, and they could air their system. Along with this big tape goes a smaller tape that's going to contain the cards and the interviews for the particular market that the shape is being bicycled to, which means that in Knoxville, you had to go in early in the day, and you had to cut interviews for other markets where these tapes went. So you spent a lot of time on Saturdays working on TV. Wrestlers came in early. They all cut the interviews, and then you did the actual show. So then there was a second smaller tape. This was put on a smaller tape, and it contained the interviews and the cards for this market wherever the tape is going. And then that market, once they received the tape, they inserted into the tape, into this battle royal tape, uh, as the show was airing, in the spots where they were designated to go, They would show the card for that particular market, and they would show the interviews that were made perfectly to fit into those markets and into who the guys were wrestling against. Right. The complete format was, like I said, it was the show number was at the top, and the format was in every box. And when they shipped it from their station to another station, they put that format in there. They had to. And uh, everybody knew the process. So when you dealt with these new television stations, you had to go and spend time with the production people and with the people upstairs and uh, and the shipping department. And they had to be familiar with everything or you had a big problem. So that made it possible for all the stations down the line to insert those pre-cut interviews and the Vitafonted cards. We were doing Vitafont, which nobody was doing in the country, which actually 
meant that you could see the actual card on the screen when it was being talked about. And uh, they put those into the four appropriate breaks in every show. So Johnson City, let's take Johnson City. Uh, it's the first the leg of the bicycle. And uh, Johnson City uh, has two cities around it. It's called the Tri-Cities. you got Kingsport and Bristol, Tennessee. And they received this numbered show called, we call the Battle Royal Show. And uh, and there is the local card. The other tape is the local card and the interviews for that market. And uh, they air that program the week after Knoxville airs the program. So as a booker, you know what show they've got, so you know what card to book there. The card needs, obviously, to follow what's in the television program. There were two more stations on the bicycle at this point, early on, 1976. Tape went from Johnson City to Bluefield, West Virginia. And from Bluefield, West Virginia, it went to Hazard, Kentucky. And finally, that battle royal tape, after three weeks on the road, is going to arrive back in Knoxville. And it's had a little had a little travel around the southeastern United States. So this is where I had a real hard time. Uh, I, I have a hard time talking about this part of the subject because at this point, I made a horrible mistake. And in my own defense as an owner, it wasn't only me that made a horrible mistake. A lot of wrestling companies in America did not save their tapes. Mm. you know. And, and when these tapes came back to Knoxville Station, because the cost of each one, almost $1,000, and because at that time, saving your wrestling shows didn't have any importance for the future. Very few people thought that these television programs are going to be worth a lot of money down the line. So uh, when they came back to the Knoxville station, we recorded over the top of them. So obviously you lost the show that was on there. So it was a critical mistake, and, uh, and I'm willing to admit it, but uh, almost everyone in wrestling at that time made the same mistake. I wasn't Which the only one that like, got there. You probably had no idea that you would ever think at that time, you never thought you would use this tape again, that this could be valuable one day. Yeah. And, you know, if it had been on a, a little uh, quarter-inch tape like they use now in, in studios and cost $45, you would, it would be no big deal. You know, oh, right. yeah, let's throw that in the cabinet back there. Yeah. But it's $1,000. Right. <laughs> and once you've got 50 shows, you've spent $50,000, you know. And, I mean, uh, so, you know, I was doing exactly what a lot of other promoters were doing around the country and around the world. And uh, it was a mistake at the time. I didn't realize it. And uh, by the time I did, it was probably too late. Well, obviously, it was too late. So if anybody out there would like to see one of these original programs, last week I saw on social media one of the original Southeastern Wrestling television shows. It was from Knoxville in 1978. It's in great condition. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. And uh, you can find it uh, under the heading of Southeastern Championship Wrestling, July 29, 1978. Uh, it's got a uh, great tag team, Phil Hickerson and Dennis Condry. It's got Kevin Sullivan. I didn't even watch the whole program, but it is a great quality tape. Uh, it'll give fans an opportunity to see what the real Southeastern wrestling programs look like in 1978. And I think when they see it, they'll be uh, kind of impressed that uh, something like that was being done that far back. So, I hope you've enjoyed this this studcast today. The this first one of these today's training segments. 
And I'd like to get your feedback. I got a lot of fans out there that uh, are on social media with me, and uh, I'd like to get your feedback uh, about how you like this segment and and how you like that program. If you get the opportunity to watch that program on YouTube. All right, that that really sounds cool. Some interesting stuff, especially when you're talking about the the need for tape. And some stations didn't even have tape machines inside the building. So you're truly, I think you're trying to make promoters out of us and maybe owners out of us as well, Ron. I think you're, I think you're giving away the recipe here. <laughs> well, that's kind of the idea, my man. You know, I mean, uh, next week's uh, segment is we're going to drop back and we're going to be wrestlers next week. We're going to wrestle three times within three hours on three different shows in St. Louis, Missouri. And we're going to come back two weeks after that and wrestle Terry Funk based upon what happens in these three-hour programs. So we're going to go next week from being an owner and, and have figuring out how to, how to get your program taped and how to bicycle it around to being a wrestler. And uh, we're going to do this every week. And, uh, I, you know, I feel like that, that after a while, I, I believe that my fans, the people who listen to my studcast, are going to be just about the most knowledgeable wrestling fans on earth. They're going to hear a little bit of everything. Well, I feel like we have an awful lot to learn, so we've got to pay a lot of attention to what's going on around here. Okay, so where are we riding next, Stud? Well, let's jump back into late June of 1976. Now I'm going to give everyone the card that's going to be in Chilhowee Park on that Friday night of June 25th, 1976. It's a double main event. The opening match on the card is going to be Butch Malone versus Bill Dundee. And Bill Dundee is an up-and-comer. Uh, and Butch Malone is a pretty good star at this point, but he's he's certainly not going to get to where Bill Dundee's goes. Second match is going to be Mike Stallings, a young boy that uh, is doing really well in Southeastern, against uh, Don Lambert. Third match is the tag match with Ron Wright and Louis Tillette versus Duke Myers and Jim Dillinger. The first main event is the Southeastern Tag Championship match, Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden. We're going to be defending against Norvell Austin and Carl Von Steiger, new heel. That's very, very good. And that team is managed by General Homer Odell. So Homer now has another man, Carl Von Steiger. Second main event, the last match on the card is Southeastern Heavyweight Championship with the new champion, Professor Tor Tanaka, against the overnight sensation Bob Armstrong. So before we get to the results of this card, let's take a look at the highlights of the TV show. That's on Saturday, June 19th. It's six days before this card is going to be in action. And uh, it's the day after the annual Battle Royal is taking place. So we've got a lot of videos in this show on June 19th that's promoting this upcoming card that I just talked about. So let's open the show with a video. And the video was from the night before. As I said, there was a battle royal night. And it was just the very end of the battle royal. And it began the video with a very bloody Bob Armstrong. He was throwing Tor Tanaka over the top rope. And uh, it showed the crazy scene that followed it as it was Bob Armstrong's first night in Southeastern. And he got over so well that when he tossed Tanaka over the top rope in the battle royal, the fans mobbed him. He, he couldn't get out of the ring for probably 20 minutes. Well, uh, and he's signing autographs. And it was just like I'd never seen anybody get over that fast. 
the fans in the studio, they seem to be waiting on on this video. They saw Armstrong uh, uh, on the video, and they saw him dump Tanaka. The fans in the studio, they've got all these monitors in the studio. They all just exploded like it was just happening live. It was like they was almost waiting on Bob Armstrong to appear in the studio. So Les invites him out right then. It was perfect. Huge ovation from the studio crowd. And uh, at the end of it, you know, uh, Les gets him out there, and the fans just really give uh, Armstrong a great, great welcome, man. And it's his first time on television in Southeastern history. So I'd never seen a baby face, like I said, get over as fast as he did. And the fans at home had never even seen this guy. And they, he gets that back type of introduction. They got to wonder, how does this guy become this popular, man? They act like they know who he was. The crowd just, uh, they act like he was their all-time favorite. So Bob comes out on the set, and he's got a pretty significant bandage on his forehead. He was lacerated the night before. He was actually lacerated in the match before the battle roar. And Les welcomes him to Southeastern Wrestling. And Les echoes my thoughts that, uh, you know, Bob had already captured the hearts of the fans all over the Southeast, it seemed like, overnight. And Bob was so good at being humble and polite, you know, and uh, and it was a, a lesson for every baby face that was in that territory and for baby faces today, you know. If you're a baby face, you can't be too humble and you can't be too like, too polite. So, you know, watching him that day for young guys, they should really pick up quickly on uh, how important it was to interview the way Bob did. Les quickly thanked him for coming out, and he passed him the check for 5000 from the night before. Uh, he should have got it at the, at the match, but uh, he was bleeding so badly, and Les explained that, Bob, you didn't get this check last night, and we're glad we didn't give it to you because you might not have been able to cash it with as bloody as it was going to be from your hands and stuff. And the fans were going to be, uh, you know, and they were going to be involved in two, and they were trying to get autographs. So they said, uh, you know, Southeastern officials decided we'd wait and present this to you here right here on TV. So the fans cheered when he got handed a check, and Bob thanked uh, Les, and he thanked the Southeastern officials. Humble again. Uh, Les announced Bob was going to be back later in the show. He's going to be on the personality profile, and he's going to end the show wrestling live. Well, hell, the people just exploded again. It's like they can't get enough of him already. So uh, as soon as old Bob clears the studio, you know, here comes Homer and Tanaka. Tanaka comes out. He's wearing the southeastern belt around his waist, which he had just won earlier in the week. And uh, Homer comes rushing to the set, and Homer's furious. You know, we haven't even started. There's been no live wrestling yet, and Homer's screaming at Les. And he asked Les to explain to him how a new wrestler that's never been seen on this TV before is more important than my man Tanaka, who's just won the Southeastern Championship. What the heck is going on here, right? It's like Homer's getting pushed to the back all the time. And it was kind of a legitimate question, you know, and Les kind of fumbled around for an answer. <laughs> so, so Homer says, uh, well, why don't you show the video of my man winning the Southeastern Championship? Why didn't you open the show with that, Les? And, uh, you know, so Les makes up an excuse, and he talks to him about uh, not being on the format in that, in that order. And he said, uh, Tanaka's scheduled to be in your first match here, Homer. And he said, why don't you get him in the ring? Homer says, all right. So he kind of mumbles something to Les, and he takes Tanaka to the ring. 
And Tanaka just literally destroys a poor job boy in less than three minutes. I mean, just packs him up like he's chopping liver or something. Man, it was just unbelievable. Tanaka seemed mad because he wasn't on the first of the show, too. Well, later in the show, Les did the personality profile with Armstrong. It was live, obviously, in front of the studio crowd. It was in the adjacent studio, but fans could see through the big openings and the doors there, and uh, they could see what was going on. Then they showed the video of the six-man tag from the night before, where Bob was opened up. He had a pretty bad cut, and then Homer and Austin and Von Steiger, uh, they threw Ron right over the top rope, but showed that, and uh, onto the concrete, and it hurt right. And then the three of them jumped on Armstrong, and they got him bleeding. Well, the studio crowd, they reacted to the videos just as if they had seen them. And a lot of them had seen it. It was the night before, and they'd come to the TV. So uh, there was cheering throughout. Every time Bob made a comeback in the video, the crowd in the studio started cheering like there was this just, 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 just It was like tremendous. You, you couldn't have planned for people to get into it like that. But they really were into Bob Armstrong. Then they watched the, the last few minutes of the battle roar that was partially shown. The one same one was partially shown at the beginning of the show. But this one goes back to the point to where there's only four guys left in the ring in the Battle Royal. It's Norvell Austin, Tanaka, and Homer, and Bob Armstrong. He's in there with three heels by himself, and he still managed to win. And the crowd exploded again when, when Bob threw Tanaka over the top rope and we end up winning the Battle Royal, just like they did at the first of the show. So Homer and Tanaka and Austin, boy, they... They suddenly appear in the studio. Homer's still mad about what's going on here. And uh, Les sees him coming, and he gets out of his seat right away, and he demands Homer, stop right there, Homer. Do you guys stay back? This is not your segment here, you know. And and Homer demanded, and he just screamed at Les, you know, hey, you, you got to show this Robert Fuller getting beat by my man Tanaka. My man Tanaka's the new champion. And the studio fans, they got really involved. They they, you know, they see that uh, there's got about to be the fight <laughs> and, you know, things are about to break loose. And that's what they wanted. Heck, yeah, let's get this thing going. And uh, let's call for the director to close. Well, first, Tanaka makes a move for Armstrong and Bob's sitting there. And when he does, Bob gets up and he breaks down in one of those little karate stances. And, uh, and then Les says, let's go to black, <laughs> you know, we'll <laughs> have a big fight here. So, uh it was basically pandemonium in the studio just during the personality profile. So coming out of that commercial break, the next segment of the show opened up with Ron Wright and Louis Tillette. And they're at the set with Les. And Les asked Wright to join him for a special video. And Louis Tillette tagged along because he and Ron Wright are going to be working partners in the tag match, the next tag match. And they're working partners the following Friday night. So Tillette comes to the set with him. So. Les shows the video that was cut earlier in the day. This is a surprise for all these fans. He cut a video earlier in the day, long before the show started, and when there was nobody else in the studio except for Don Carson on crutches. And Carson, uh, you know, a week or two earlier, had gotten that, his knee torn up, and uh, he had had surgery and the whole deal. And, you know, Don Carson, I mean, he... <laughs> He cried. He had the honest tears running down his cheeks and crying because of what Ron Wright had done to his knee and, and how uncertain now my career is. He might have ruined my wrestling career. Cried about his family. My family ain't eating. We're going without food. 
And, you know, and how unnecessary that it was to hurt his leg. And how could a man hate him for no reason like that? Like Don Carson, you know, the typical Don Carson interview. I mean, he had people going crazy in the studio. He's not even there. And they're booing him like crazy. (laughs) And he's crying and moaning about uh, what a horrible guy Ron Wright is. And and the studio audience then starts laughing at him, you know. And, uh, And by the time the interview's over, Ron Wright's laughing louder than all of them. He's he's really <laughs> laughing at him, like, oh, ain't he pitiful, you know? So it's a good segment. So then Les shows a short clip of the match from the night before, the six-man tag. And he shows Ron Wright getting thrown over the top rope by the three guys. And it shows Louis Tillet coming down. And Louis helps Ron Wright back to the dressing room. And then Les you know, points to the fact that, hey, you guys are going to be partners next Friday night, pressing against Duke Myers and Jim Dillinger. And uh, Ron Wright says, obviously, yeah, that's correct. And he thanked Louie Tillet for helping him back to the dressing room. And then Louie, in his uh, French-Canadian accent, uh, and Louie's a tremendous worker, tremendous worker and a great heel. He makes an eloquent speech. And it, with in people, I don't know how the Southerners could understand all of it, but uh, they, they obviously did. And he talked about how the fans all over the world respected Ron Wright and how Ron Wright was a legend in Montreal and all the French Canadians love Ron Wright. You know, Ron Wright never been to Canada. <laughs> I'm sure people are going, what is they talking about? And then he goes, you know, Ron Wright's the toughest guy I've ever seen. And I'm just honored to be a partner next Friday night with such a fantastic athlete as Ron Wright. I mean, the people at home had to be going, what in the heck is going on here? So Ron, he gets he gets into it. And you can see he's, he smiled. He, he really, he's like, he's kind of beaming. Wow, geez, man, he's making me sound good. You know, and so he has to say something kind of nice back to Louie and you know, so he, he said, you know, something like, I, you know, I don't know too much about Louis Tillet, except, you know, he's got a worldwide reputation as a good wrestler. And uh, he was looking forward to having him as a partner in the following Friday night. So this seemingly ordinary preliminary match that's getting some publicity on this program is going to have a great impact on the future of Southeastern wrestling. We talked a little bit about it last week, about Don Carson and Louis Tillet getting together. So the final segment of the TV opened with Les, Homer, and Tanaka. Tanaka is standing behind Homer. He's wearing his new Southeastern belt. And Homer finally gets his moment in his video from Johnson City, Tennessee, where we'd sent a crew to record the match. And boy, he bragged about Tanaka and how Tanaka was going to be the Southeastern champion forever. He was unbeatable. So Bob Armstrong's on the very next match. When he enters the studio to wrestle, geez, they went crazy again. You know, it was just like, uh, geez, like he'd paid the crowd, you know. And Bob showed off his wrestling skills. Uh, Tanaka and Homer, they come into the studio about the middle of the match, and Tanaka threatened to get in the ring. And uh, Bob took that out on his opponent when he saw those two guys there. He wanted to finish his opponent pretty fast. And he broke down and did some karate moves that all just tore the crowd up. He hadn't even done that the night before. And uh, Bob was a Marine, and he hadn't right. had all that training. He knew how to do this stuff, right? And uh, Tanaka was headed into the ring, and Bob broke down on this kid and uh, just hit him with some stuff, and Tanaka backed off. 
then the crowd really erupted like, wow, man, he's scared of Bob, you know, so and everybody there was scared of Tanaka. So I could only imagine what was happening at home. So we're watching this this new guy, Bob Armstrong, and then how they were feeling about him at the end of this show. So the stage was set, obviously, for the showdown six nights later between uh, two titans of the sport. And to be honest, that's the darn truth. In 1976, Tor Tanaka and Bob Armstrong wrestled in Knoxville, Tennessee, late 1976 in June. Wow, what a TV show. We're going to take a break right here. We're going to be back quicker than Bob Armstrong can become a babyface. More on this Studcast coming up. Super Studcast are becoming the home of Hall of Fame wrestlers. There are already at least nine Hall of Famers in Super Studcast. Now comes number 10, the next great star at Hall of Famer. His career spans from the old school days of continental wrestling, Memphis, world-class wrestling in Texas, WCW, and finally the WWE. No man worked harder or sacrificed his body more than the man of five names, Cactus Jack, Dude Love, Mankind, Socko, and his real name, of course, Mick Foley at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Super Studcast number 30, part one, is here. Joining Ron is his brother, Robert Fuller, Colonel Parker of WCW, and Tennessee Lee of WWE, and one of Mick's greatest friends in wrestling. This one is super in every way. A reunion filled with absolutely unforgettable stories that you will never hear anywhere else at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Only $2.99. Super Studcaster on fire, and it's time to jump in. All right, David Summers, we're back, and we're still taking this incredible ride with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, and we're headed to Knoxville. All right, Ron, let's pick it up from there. We talked about this TV. Let's go back and talk about what happened on that Friday night, June 25th, 1976. And the opening match was a tremendous one, uh, you know, and it was the great way to start a match. It's a, a night. You know, I always loved a, a, a first match that got everybody involved because it kind of sets the tone for the rest of the night. And this one was certainly a great one. I mean, Butch Malone's pretty good baby face at this point, And his opponent is Bill Dundee, who's becoming a tremendous little heel. They tore the house down in that first match. And like I said, they set the tone for the rest of the night. Second match was a quick win for the young baby face, uh, Mike Stallings, who was really improving just as fast as Bill Dundee was improving. And, uh, and Mike Stallings uh, got a win right in the middle with a sleeper hold over Don Lambrick. Third match was going to be a lot more than anybody expected. <laughs> that was for sure. Now the booker is going to get involved here. You know, it started off as every other tag match that didn't have a reason for the fans to be really involved in it. There wasn't a lot of heat between these two teams. There wasn't a special angle leading up to it or nothing like that. So the fans were somewhat into it. But, uh, you know, during the match, they were up and down and kind of like, yeah, that's pretty good. That's not so good. But by the end, this thing's going to end up in a near riot. So Ron Wright gets a hot tag from his partner, Louis Tillet, and he quickly finishes the match. He puts an ordinary pin on Duke Myers. He gives him a few of them, uh, you know, warp your head offs and, uh, you know, whatever, and uh, he takes the win right there in the middle of the ring. Both the heels leave the ring pretty quickly. So Ron Wright at this point, he has a little custom that he liked to do, especially outside in the big amphitheater. 
when he won matches, he liked to go and face the big grandstand, which was on one side of the ring. Uh, that's where the major part of the crowd was. You could put more than 5,000 people in that grandstand. And uh, so that night's a pretty good crowd in that grandstand. So as Ron Wright's custom was, he turned his attention toward the huge grandstand. And uh, when he was looking at the grandstand, his back is to the building in which the dressing rooms are housed. It's set up on the ringside level. So he didn't see what's going on behind him. And the fans are cheering him. They're giving the Ron Wright cheers. They always were always into Ron Wright. Then all of a sudden, out of the dressing room comes Don Carson on crutches, and he started toward the ring. And when the fans see Don Carson, they're trying to tell Ron that, hey, Ron, look, you know, look behind you. And Ron just, he thinks that the fans are getting louder and louder. He thinks, well, heck, what a great reaction I'm getting. So he's getting more enthused all the time. So he's right, really, right. he's milking it for more. He's He don't understand that something bad's coming, man. So. So Louis Tillet's in there uh, as his partner, and he's standing with his back to the dressing room, and he's watching Ron Wright's back. He's between uh, Carson, who's approaching the ring, and Ron Wright, who's standing on the ropes on the far side of the ring, uh, celebrating with the big grandstand crowd. So about that time, Carson rolls into the ring. So when Carson rolls into the ring, Louis goes around, Wright's about to turn around. He sees him. That's why he's watching Wright. He sees him start to turn around, and he don't want him to see Carson coming. So he runs around and distracts him again, and he gets the people cheering again, and he gives poor old Carson, who can't stand up. He's just had knee operation. He's on a set of crutches, the opportunity to get up on his crutches inside the ring behind Ron Wright's back. Ron don't know he's there. Uh, the entire amphitheater at this point is trying to let him know what the hell is going on. The crowd noise was unbelievable, you know, and Ron's just still milking it and throwing yeah. his hands up over his head. He's enjoying the hell out of it. And Carson takes one of those crutches and nails him across the back with it. Hits him so hard that the crutch breaks in half and Wright goes down face first in the ring. And Carson falls, too, because he can't stand up. He needs two crutches to stand on, and he's used one of them. So he falls down on the mat at the same time. Talay goes over, and he picks up the bottom half of the crutch. Now, people don't know what the heck is going to happen, but Ron Wright turns over, and now obviously he's took a pretty good shot in the back from the crutch, and he looks up, and Louis Talay blasts him with that bottom part of that crutch right across the forehead. Mm. <laughs> so, so the little, little Louis Talay becomes a Tennessee trader, man. I'm telling you. He, and uh, he really slammed that crutch across uh, Wright's forehead. In fact, Wright's going to have a trip to the hospital from it. And uh, blood shot out of the cut from where I was. And I was way in the back, uh, close to the dressing room. So Carson crawled over. He couldn't get up. He didn't. He wasn't able to get up by himself because he still had his leg all screwed up. So he crawled over behind Ron Wright, and he was sitting on his butt in a sitting position. When Wright tried to sit up, then he just slid right in behind him. And Talay found the other half of the crutch, the top half that you lean on, and he right. handed it to Carson. And Carson reached over Ron Wright's head and socked that right into his neck and started choking Ron Wright to death. He's behind him. 
He's choking him, and Louis Talay starts pounding Ron right in the head. I mean, the, oh, the fan. It wasn't 20 seconds until ringsiders were out of their seats. They were starting to come to the ring. Uh, the policemen there were really good because it was a town in which riots were like a lot of places in Southeastern. You had riots, and uh, the policemen were expecting it. Uh, once they saw this happen, they were like, oh, gosh, man, this is bad. So they all came to ringside, and they were trying to keep the fans back as well as they could, but it was kind of total bedlam. So finally, Butch Malone comes from the babyface dressing room and comes down to the ring and jumps on the apron. Well, Talay reached over, and he got Carson's unbroken crutch, and he knocks him off the apron with his crutch. So Mike Stallings comes down, and he gets the same thing. Talay knocks him off into the floor, and meanwhile, Carson is steadily trying to choke Ron Wright to death. So by the time uh, that they realize that if we don't go, we're not going to get out of here. They're going to get us. The fans are going to get us. Louis ran over and he grabbed Carson from behind and he drug him over to the ropes. He got the one crutch that was still left and he started screaming for the police. And the police came right there. They surrounded him. Carson got out. They got one crutch under his arm. Louis got on the other. Police surrounded them, and they got them back to the dressing room in one piece, which was oh. a feat. I can tell you, the crowd was just, they were ready to kill him. And uh, Ron Wright, uh, you know, he was laying there bleeding in the ring, probably for five minutes. Bad enough that the, the Chilhowee Park, they had a, some medics there that, uh, you know, that in case somebody got hurt for other events or whatever. And it was an actual park there, too. They came into the ring, which was really unusual, and they were trying to apply a tourniquet to his head. They were trying to stop his bleeding, and, uh, you know, he couldn't catch his breath. So they stretchered him back to the dressing room, and an ambulance was called. And when the ambulance arrived, the siren was blaring, and uh, thousands of fans that were inside the amphitheater, they went right outside. The match is still going on, but they all f just flowed outside to see Ron Wright, just to see how bad he was hurt and to watch him take him to the ambulance. I went and got my car, and I, I got up there close to the ambulance, and when the ambulance left, I followed him. And uh, I didn't know what hospital they were going to take him to, and I followed the ambulance to the hospital. So in the hospital, when they were checking him out, he had a huge contusion, man. I mean, a bruise on his back where that crutch had broken across his back and they put 15 stitches in his left eye they had busted his right eye <laughs> months earlier carson was responsible for that this time they got his left eye for about 15 stitches he was released that night he didn't have any more problems other than that he was going to be sore his back was going to hurt him and he's going to have to wrestle with a busted eye and some stitches in it for a week or so by ron wright standards it wasn't bad in fact, when we were in there by ourselves, he said to me the same thing. He said, he said, Ron, this ain't bad, is it really? You know? <laughs> I was looking at him and I saw a bruise that was uh, six inches long and six inches wide on his back and, and his eyes all sewn up. I said, no, Ron, you look good. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, Ron Wright was tough. <laughs> there was no other way about it. You know, he, he kind of thought it was a, was a good deal. It wasn't bad, Ron. So, uh, <laughs> so part of the June 4th, uh, 1976, the so Southeastern Slaughter Night, 
which was about two weeks earlier than that, three weeks earlier almost, right. had been avenged. Carson had got <laughs> his revenge, right? And and that angle that, that I was afraid that I had lost because Carson got hurt just as he turned on Ron Wright, we never got to get anything out of it. That angle that I thought was lost, by gosh, it was found again. I mean, uh, it rocketed. Fans got into this deal. You know, once they realize, and that's what they're going to find out, is that this is a plan, was a plan for two, three weeks. And Louis Tillet wasn't there as a good guy. He was there to do Don Carson's dirty work. So it's kind of hard to follow something like that the rest of a night. When you have a match like that, third match of the night, people aren't expecting it to be anything, and you damn near have a riot, it's pretty hard for Rob and Jimmy to go out there and defend their tag titles against Austin and Kurt and get the crowd up. And they lost that night. It was the first loss for Rob and Jimmy since April 16th of 1976. So they had gone a few months here without having lost a match. But they got beat that night by Norville Austin and Kurt Von Steiger and General Homer O'Dell was managing. So the crowd in the last two matches they had seen, they'd got quite a bit of misery. They'd seen Ron Wright get killed darn near, and now Rob and Jimmy lost the belts. But boy, the man of the hour showed up, old Bob Armstrong. And by gosh, he got the fans back in that last one, I'll tell you that. He had a tremendous match with uh, the Southeastern champion Tanaka. And Bob was disqualified because he broke down and he did some karate things that, uh, you know, <laughs> were probably shouldn't have been done. And thank goodness he kicked enough ass to make everybody go home happy. <laughs> you know? so, so he kind of turned the whole thing around. I can tell you that. Sounds like another big night in the park. What was the crowd like? It had to be just really incredible. Oh, it was a big one. It was uh, over 5,000 again. Uh, we had gotten back. We'd crawled back since the night of the slaughter where we'd lost me and Dick Steinborn and Don Carson all in one night and dropped back down into the fours. We went back over five again. Uh, and it was the first time since June 4th we'd had a crowd of that size. And uh, the smaller crowds that we ran that week were pretty decent as well. And the boys averaged about $800 for the week again, uh, which was darn significant money. I think the last week, it, and then we, I ran the figure on it, was, it was around $5,000 for the week. Pretty good week for guys in 1976. And some of the guys that week got over $1,000 because the underneath card for this Knoxville card was a very weak underneath card. So it worked out really good for the boys. All right. I'm curious. You mentioned earlier in the opening about a smaller cities card that was happening that week. What was that all about? Well, you know, I mentioned earlier that, and we don't talk too often about the smaller cities, but, uh, you know, thanks for reminding me about it. That we, since we don't talk about it, I wanted to take a look today at, uh, at the card of one of these small cities that we were running during the course of the week. We ran two regular towns, Knoxville on Friday, Johnson City on Tuesday. And on Monday and Wednesday and Thursday and Saturday, we ran small cities somewhere. So I picked out a card that was run on Wednesday night, June the 23rd, 1976. It's a little town called Middlesboro, Kentucky. It's about 75 miles north of Knoxville. Uh, it sits at the Cumberland Gap. Daniel Boone became famous for discovering this Cumberland Gap in which uh, people were able to move across the mountains from uh, the eastern part of the United States uh, toward the Mississippi River. 
so, you know, it's in a nice little spot there, Middlesbrough, Kentucky. We're going to go to that town for at least about once a month during uh, 1976. So I want to give you this card for this little small town, and, uh, and there's a reason for it. So the opening match was, dig this, opening match, Bob Armstrong and Norval Austin. Wow. Tora Tanaka against Mike Stallings in the second match. Ron Wright against the Super Avenger number one, who is Dick Dunn. Uh, and it's his last match ever for Southeastern. There's a six-man tag on this card with two out of three falls. The tag match is Robert Fuller, Bob Armstrong, and Mike Stallings against Tor Tanaka, Norvell Austin, and Carl Von Steiger, managed by Homer Odell. And at the end of all that, there's an eight-man battle royal on top of all that. So if you look at that card, it contains eight of about the best workers in America. I mean, you know. Plus the top manager of Homer Odell. So fans in this city, they've been getting wrestling occasionally, probably since the 1960s and maybe even before that. Every once in a while, wrestling came back. But they had never seen talent like this. This was just unbelievable. So Bob Armstrong and Norvell Austin in the first match, I mean, that is just unreal. Bob Armstrong was never in a first match. It had been 10 years since he'd ever wrestled in the first match. Uh, you know, it's like, are you kidding? I mean, who, how are you going to beat that? So you got a six-man tag, plus you got a battle royal. You got five matches in all. I mean, when you added up the fact that these guys had been seen every Saturday afternoon on the biggest TV station in Knoxville with the best wrestling TV show in the country, it was exactly why everywhere across the Southeast by this point, that there weren't buildings big enough to hold these fans in these small cities. They got to see stars that they had never dreamed they'd get to see. And the amazing part about this, Dave, is uh, it's only the beginning. I mean, it it hadn't even started to really happen yet. These people are yet to see the Mongolian Stomper, Ronnie Garvin, Joe LaDue, Austin Idol, Tony Charles, and the list goes on and on and on. So, these fans in the Southeast are lucky. I mean, we're, I'm beginning to get some tremendous talent. They're going to see some of the all-time best before it's all over. And uh, things are just going to get better and better. Uh, talent is going to get better and better for the next three years. No doubt about it. And notice how well you are at name dropping, too. Good job with that, Ron. Uh, it's hard to argue <laughs> yeah. that at all. I think it's time for us to get that cold drink. We will take a seat under the learning tree. And you can call us Grasshopper. So what's up for today? <laughs> All right. Well, today, we're not going to take a question like we usually do. You know, and today's kind of a wake-up call for me. You know, uh, this is like a learning tree lesson for me, actually, today. Uh, uh, you know, and I, and I, I needed to, this kind of made me realize what happened this week with Mr. Wrestling number two last week uh, made me realize that I had to quit overlooking the precious time that I had to spend with, with guys that I'd worked with and are getting up in age and, and just how much those guys meant to me. So this learning tree, I'm going to dedicate to the memory of one of the all-time greats, the guy we lost last week, uh, Mr. Wrestling number two, Johnny Walker. Mm. And oddly enough, uh, we were just talking about him three weeks ago in Studcast number 149. He was part of the same learning tree segment that we're doing now. 
And he was part of the answer to the, one of the questions about why wrestlers wear masks. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's strange that we were talking about him just a couple of weeks ago, and now he's gone. So let me tell people a little history about the great Johnny Walker. His, his real name was John Francis Walker. He was born on September 10th, 1934 in Charleston, South Carolina. As a wrestler, he was six feet tall, and he normally weighed somewhere around 240 pounds. He was trained by a guy named Tony Morelli, uh, who I, I really had never heard of. I don't know anything about Tony Morelli, but he was trained by another guy named Pat O'Connor. And he's a former NWA world champion, and I worked with him many times in St. Louis. He's a fantastic wrestler. So he had some good training. Uh, Johnny started wrestling professionally in 1955. Uh, he was nicknamed the Rubber Man by Paul Bosch. Paul Bosch is a very famous wrestling promoter in Houston, Texas, one of the most famous wrestling promoters of all time. So Paul Bosch called Johnny Walker uh, the Rubber Man. And uh, Johnny did have a very flexible body, and his joints were certainly not stiff. I mean, Johnny could do some things with his body that, uh, you know, he looked like a contortionist sometimes. So, right. you know, yeah. so, but Johnny had a very odd career. He didn't have great success in his early years. Uh, he almost didn't have success at all. It's pretty amazing. He, he wasn't successful at all without a mask. Johnny uh, Walker. Rubber man Johnny Walker never got over. It just didn't happen for him. Wow. So um, after starting in 1955, nine years later in 64, he quit. He retired. He, you know, he hadn't, hadn't done anything much, you know. And part of that was as a result of wrestling without a mask. He just wasn't able to get over without it. So he came back to the sport in the early 70s. And he had a mask on this time. He came to work the Florida Territory. He was called himself the Grappler. And I was there at that time wrestling myself, a young man, been in the sport two years, got the opportunity to wrestle with Johnny a couple of times. He was 14 years older than I was. I never got to spend a lot of time with him uh, because I lived in West Palm at this point and uh, all the wrestlers lived in Tampa. But I did get to work with him a few times and he was a tremendous worker. I couldn't figure out why he didn't make money. And he still failed to get over and he retired again. In 1972, I mean, you know, it just seemed like it wasn't going to happen for him. But his day was going to come, and it came in late 72. Things changed for him forever uh, because he was working at a gas station in Tennessee. This is, think about this, it's a pretty amazing part of his life. He, he had failed twice at wrestling. Now he's working at a gas station, and he gets a visit from the promoter out of Atlanta named Paul Jones. And Paul Jones Booker drove up to Tennessee to this gas station to, to talk to Johnny Walker. And uh, the Booker's name was Leo Garibaldi, a tremendous Booker, who had been working and booking in the early 70s in Florida. And I think Leo got a feeling for Johnny's talent as the Booker when he was there in the early 70s. And he found out that Johnny wasn't working anywhere and he was working at a gas station. And they drive to Tennessee, and Leo sits down and talks to Johnny and says, I have an angle. I want to work. He says, I've got a baby face uh, who is really good. He's over like crazy. The guy's name was Mr. Wrestling. Uh, he, was, uh, he was a tremendous amateur wrestler, Tim Woods. And he says, I want to bring you in and partner you 
with Mr. Wrestling, and I want you to be under the hood, and I want to call you Mr. Wrestling, too. Wow. There's where it all began. So Johnny leaves the gas station business. He puts on that white mask, same as Mr. Wrestling One wore, and he comes to Atlanta. Uh, they work together as partners, and then they work an angle in which they split as a team. And that angle and that split, that finally popped Johnny Walker uh, as a star in the state of Georgia. I go there in 1974. I am the Georgia champion. I go in and I win the Georgia championship from Bill Watts. I go back three weeks later, early 1974, and I put the belt on Johnny Walker, Mr. Wrestling too. It is during the Atlanta Wrestling War between uh, the National Wrestling Alliance, Georgia Wrestling, Georgia Championship Wrestling, and Ann Gunkel's All-Star Wrestling. It's a very strange time period. Uh, there's two organizations vying for who is going to promote wrestling in Georgia, and both of them are doing great. And when Wrestling 2 wins this belt for me, it's the first time of 10 times that he's going to win this belt. And his popularity took off that night. We had a tremendous match, great finish. It was the first time I probably ever used his famous knee lift. People had never seen it. So during his Georgia run, he was considered one of the five most popular wrestlers in the United States. He wow. really exploded in popularity. Wow. He wasn't famous with just fans, though. Uh, he had famous fans himself. And, uh, and particularly, he had one of them that was a Georgia governor who's going to become the president of the United States, Jimmy Carter. Exactly, yeah. He was yeah. crazy about wrestling, too. And so was his mother. Carter's mother was more crazy about wrestling, too, than Carter was. And uh, wrestling, too, used to regularly visit Mrs. Carter, the, his Carter's mother. And, and they would allow him to wear his mask when he took his visit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because he wouldn't take his mask off. Johnny Walker was the most kayfabe mask wrestler in history. He would not remove his mask. And he would go in restaurants. He went everywhere with his mask, even awesome. Mrs. Carter's home. You know? Right. So, I saw, I saw a, a photo that's getting this absolutely famous, and it's of the, the, the president, Jimmy Carter, and he has him in a headlock. And that's one of the photos wearing the mask, of course, that, that we saw in the last couple of weeks after his passing. And I just thought, wait a minute, that's President Carter or who would eventually become President Carter. So well, we a, a really unique uh, relationship there. It's amazing. And we put a photo on every studcast. I put it on my website for every yeah. studcast. And that's going to be the photo. People have never seen it. They can go to my website at tnstud.com. Yeah. And they can look under the Studcast page or the gallery and find that picture of Mr. Wrestling number two being headlocked by Jimmy Carter, the president of the United States. Awesome. So now Johnny is a huge star. So he works in the WWF in 1984, about 84 to 86. He gets his shot at the big time, but they never use him properly. He's an older guy by this time. And during the same time frame, he's working for me at Continental Wrestling quite a bit. So, you know, Johnny spent a lot of time with me from 84 to probably 87 working as well. But this story's really got legs. I mean, you, Johnny wasn't the only famous person in his house. Uh, his wife was named Olivia, and she was a famous seamstress. 
She made outfits for country stars, Porter Wagner and Dolly Parton. Wow. I mean, she was good. She also made robes for wrestlers like her husband. She made Ric Flair's robe. She made Greg Valentine's robe. She made every robe I ever had. She wow. was unbelievable at it. And I loved her. She was a fine woman, unbelievable. She was a great woman, and she was as down to earth as Johnny was himself. They were a beautiful couple. She, she died in 2002. And if there's any joy for me in this little tribute I'm doing here, it's the thought of those two people being together again in heaven, by golly. You know, I, I know that Johnny, Johnny missed her so badly for 20 years. He, he lived 20 years after she left. And, uh, and gosh, it makes me feel good to know that they're together again. So basically, uh, you know, Johnny was a great friend of mine. I last saw him in person in May of 2019 at a Continental Wrestling Reunion in Dothan, Alabama. Mm -hmm. uh, we sat alone on the tailgate of a pickup truck parked next to the arena, and we talked about old times. A fan took a picture of us that night together, and I, I'm going to put that on my, on my website as well, a picture of me and Johnny Walker uh, in 2019. You know, and, uh, and Dave, uh, you know, it's a sad thing, uh, you know. We never know when we have these heartfelt, good old time conversations that it's going to be the last conversation we ever have with that person we love, you know, yeah. and that's what it was for me and Johnny that night. And uh, as I said, if you want to take a look at those pictures, they're uh, they're on my website, dnstud.com, uh, either Studcast page or the gallery. Well, that sounds like a great couple. Another big loss for the sport and what a moment to sit there and and again stud you're right you never know when it's the last conversation and that was a big one all right to become friends with ron like his ron fuller the tennessee stud page and you become friends with a legend twitter you find ron at ron fuller welch super stud cast number 30 another hall of famer mick foley mankind and other names as well it is now available at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast for only $2.99. Ron, I bet you got something to say about this one. Oh, I do, man. My brother was on this one with me. He has a great lifelong relationship with Mick Foley. Cactus Jack, uh, who was, that's who he was when he came. Cactus Jack started with Continental. Uh, right. He got his start as a lot of young wrestlers working for us and this Super Stud Castle was so much fun. I mean, it is just, it's, it's laughter. It's, it's a party from beginning to end, really. And Jack, I have so much respect for Cactus Jack, for Mick Foley. I don't know of a guy that's got more guts and taken more bumps and, and done more crazy things than, than he has and, and still walking. He's truly amazing. And for fans out there, if you like him, even if you don't like him, this is true wrestling, and then he will—he is the embodiment of what you give and how you sacrifice if you want to become a star. Absolutely. All right. So, what a great show this week. Where are we headed next week? Well, in the new segment, today's training. Uh, like I said earlier, we're going to become a wrestler next week. We were a uh, owner this week, and we're going to become a wrestler, and we're going to work three straight St. Louis TVs in one afternoon. And then we're going to go back uh, two weeks later in the Keel Auditorium in St. Louis and wrestle Terry Funk. We're riding also into wow. July of 1976 next week. 
And uh, Southeastern wrestling is catching on fire at this point. All-time Southeastern crowds and Chilhai Park has been there for years and years. We're going to break all the records in the next few weeks. July 2nd, we'll be talking about next week. We'll call it the Spectacular. It's going to feature the return of Don Carson as a manager. It's going to also have Bob Armstrong and Tanaka in another battle with each other. The learning tree question next week is going to be about NWA conventions. And why was there such trust put in Sam Muchnick, who was never even a wrestler? Pretty darn good question. And uh, before I go, I want to thank everybody again, all my listeners out there. I want you to keep riding with me, folks, and, uh, and take care of yourselves and others, and may God bless us all. This is David Summers reminding everyone that Ron Fuller Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Saddle up again next week and ride with us back into wrestling history. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. 